Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Amanda Williams with the MacArthur Memorial, and I'm here with Jim Zobel, also of the MacArthur Memorial. And today we're going to be talking about MacArthur and the Spanish flu. But the Spanish flu is a bit of a misnomer. In the spring and summer of 1918, the Allied and Central Powers were all seeing outbreaks of this virus. The Allied and Central Powers, though, were very heavily censoring their press, though. They didn't want their enemies to know that their factory workers were getting sick, that their troops were getting sick, that their populations were getting sick. Spain, though, is one of these countries, though, that's neutral and is not censoring its press during the war. So everybody is reading about this terrible flu that's happening in Spain. And so it gets the name the Spanish flu. Now, virologists today debate where the flu actually originated. There's an idea that perhaps it was a swine flu that started somewhere in Kansas and then it's brought to the rest of the world by American mobilization during the war. There's also an idea that it originated in Mongolia and that Chinese laborers who were brought to France during the war perhaps brought it to everybody. Um, those are just a few of the different options, though. And regardless of where it started, it certainly was spread around by all of the troop movements throughout the war. The first wave hits around the spring-summer of 1918. That wave is very contagious, but not as deadly. There's a mutation in the virus, and in the fall of 1918, you have a second wave, and this wave is far more deadly than the first one. Now, this one is probably transported by American troops arriving in Europe. Douglas MacArthur at the time is a brigadier general. He is the commander of the 42nd Division's 84th Brigade, and he's very, very ill around this time, right around the time of the start of the second wave. And we can't say for sure that he was suffering from Spanish flu, but his illness comes right around the time that the U.S. Army is very worried about Spanish flu reducing the effectiveness of American troops over in Europe and even training back in the States. And so it's very possible that he was suffering from this virus. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So, Jim, historians like to talk about how war changes the health environment. Why were the battlefields of World War I so conducive to the spread of something like the Spanish flu? It's the whole environment itself. You know, today we look at the, you know, the flu that we have and you don't know if you have it, you know, for like three or four days or more. Whereas uh, this flu that was going around back then, they said you would have a whole school full of healthy kids in the morning and by afternoon, everybody's sick and everybody's laid out. Um, so this is something that happens real fast. Of course, because of the camps, everybody's together. Uh, then when they're on the ships going over, everybody's together. Then as soon as they get to France, they go into more training camps or they're in the trenches. You know, everybody's there pretty much communicating it to everyone else. Uh, like you said, in Kansas, they the first camp that gets it is that Camp Funston in Kansas. And then and then it moves to uh, Camp Oglethorpe, which is in Georgia. And that's where they know the first two big outbreaks are. And then everybody starts taking it overseas when they get on these ships. They said over 15,000 people they thought got infected just on the journey going over to France. Some 5,000 
you know, sailors will die, merchant marine, you know, the people that are operating all these ships, um, they'll all contract it. And a lot of these people will die. I think that there was that one, the Leviathan was a transport that was going over and they had as many as like 55 deaths in one day as they were wow. going across the Atlantic. And so then all these people get to uh, France and they will just start spreading it there as well, you know. And so it's it's just kind of this perfect situation as far as people being together and this war effort and having to keep it going that just keeps getting a lot of people, you know, sicker and sicker and sicker. And I imagine, especially for the troops, once they actually get to Europe and they're in the trenches, 1918 is a very unseasonably kind of cold and wet year. And that's probably not great for your immune system, I'm guessing. Well, yeah. And, and you got to think, you know, because of the rains, because of the wet, because of you're in these trenches, um, you're in, you know, dugouts, which are just pneumonia makers in themselves. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you've got bad food. You're not getting a lot of sleep. So your, your immune system doesn't have the ability to really counteract a lot of, you know, what's going on. And they say that's that's what happens to most of them is they contract the flu. But uh, most of the people die from pneumonia, you know, and from some other respiratory illness mm-hmm. that they contract when they get the you know, the flu itself, like you said, the first one is kind of you're over with it in, in three days, but the ne- the next one is a lot deadlier. Yeah, I bet it's very deadly for people who have had, you know, been exposed to mustard gas and stuff like that then and something else to attack your respiratory system. What kind of environment is the 42nd Division in at the start of this second wave? Well, in September, they had over uh, 2,500 deaths in the AEF itself. So it's starting to get, you know, really prevalent. Uh, The 42nd Division had just gone through the Ork River campaign. And uh, there, you know, the weather had been horrible and they lose thousands of troops. This is like their worst battle, you know, worse than even the Meuse-Argonne. And so then when they go to Bormont, which is about right south of Saint-Miel, which the next campaign will go to, they're getting in thousands of replacements. And so all those replacements are bringing in that sickness, you know, in late August and early September. One of the regimental commanders, uh, Ernest Bennett, he runs the Iowa uh, National Guard Regiment that's under MacArthur's command. He's He's got influenza really, really bad throughout July and August. And by September, he's gone. There was a lot of other problems. I mean, this guy was saying that the regular army was just crucifying the National Guard to to save themselves in all these campaigns. But they said he was also just really so uh, wrought with this influenza that he had. And then um, you're getting into that San Miel period, which is a right in that September timeframe where they're all going to start getting sick. Um, and just mainly because of having to bring in all those replacements, you know, that come from America mm-hmm. where everybody is, you know, at that point, at that point getting sick. I mean, we know that the, the Germans had it a lot earlier, um, but, but, and then France, it really starts putting through, but, but it, it really starts hitting the American army in that, in that September timeframe. Now, when does MacArthur get sick and what do we know about his experience? George Leach, who's head of the 151st Artillery, they were a Minnesota National Guard uh, unit. He put out this book after the war called War Diary, and it's his diary of, you know, every day he goes through. And on the 10th of September, 
he went to see uh, Douglas MacArthur because the next day was the opening of the Samuel uh, campaign. And he said when he got there, Douglas MacArthur had the flu and he was laid out in bed and had been in bed, you know, for like a day or two. He's still doing all his work, but he's not moving around. And uh, Leach said he went in there and uh, Leach was really upset about the way the the uh, first corps had done the uh, or the corps commanders had done the artillery scheme for the division of the rainbow. And so Leach and MacArthur change it that night, but they don't tell anyone. And that's where that famous story comes from that uh, you're only made famous by the rules you break, you know, that MacArthur say, says that to Leach at that time. But Leach said right to him, you're not going to be there tomorrow. You're you're not going to be at the front of your troops tomorrow. And, and MacArthur was like, there's no way. And, you know, you know what, that I'm going to miss out on this and they said, yeah, M- MacArthur. The next day was was right there at the at the head of the line as they started moving into uh, San Miguel. So you know these guys are are um, you know at least MacArthur. He's always got that. I can will anything away. You know, <laughs> right. that's the thing. Leach Leach said that he was like incapacitated, and that you know there was no way he was going to be there, and he was totally fine. You know, the next day and, and right. didn't, didn't fall out again. A man of destiny. Okay, so what about the American Expeditionary Force as as a whole? Obviously, there is a lot going on in terms of combat and troop movements in October and into November 1918. How does Pershing tackle this problem of the flu uh, affecting the troops? Well, like we were saying, in September, they had like 2,500 dead. That first week of October 5th, they had 16,000 cases uh, just as they're moving into the Meuse-Argonne. And I think at this time, it, it opens like at the end of September, like September 26th. And they say there's it's ravaging France, you know, already the uh-huh. population and, and uh, the army and everything. But uh, the, the thing is, is the weather had really changed right here uh, when they go into that Meuse-Argonne. It's, you know, it's 33 degrees and raining every day. And and this is where it really starts getting everyone because the supply problem is really bad. The logistics, the, the food problem is really bad. You know, again, like we were talking, nobody's getting any sleep. Nobody can can really deal with this thing. And so uh, the the they said in, in the rear lines of the AEF during the Meuse Argonne, they had over 100,000 lingerers and stragglers, you know, just weren't joining their units, were just laying back behind the lines. And you wonder how many of those guys were just all had the flu, you know, and they they, right. they they couldn't make it anymore. And so Pershing, by by like the first of November, he needs ninety one thousand replacements just for the casualties and all the flu cases that he has. And so he's got this decision to make, and he's like, okay, well the the company size of a company is about two hundred and fifty men at that time, and they reduce it down to one hundred and seventy five just because they don't have, you know, people coming in and most of these guys wow. that were getting off the boats, they've all got the flu. And so, yeah, by October, November, when you're getting right into the end of the war, that's when it's exploding, you know, with everyone, you know, and, and Pershing gets it twice. He had it in the, in the mild phase in July. He gets it bad again in October. Uh, Lloyd George, the prime minister of Britain, he gets it. Clemenceau, the, his son-in-law dies from it. So this is, this is something that's, that's really a, affecting uh, pretty much uh, everyone. I read that um, right around like the September timeframe, the Surgeon General of the Army 
actually recommended that all the American camps in the states be quarantined and that soldiers not be sent to give Pershing those 90,000 wow. replacements yeah. that he's requesting. And then Army Chief of Staff Peyton March and Pershing both tell Wilson, you've got to give us these men. And Wilson just says, you know, we're sending them to Europe. But the Surgeon General in the Army was actually very concerned that sending more troops to Europe would just exacerbate the, the illness. Do we know how many American servicemen died of it? Was it more than our combat fatalities or less? Well, it depends on who you read. You know, everybody says something different. Um, they know right. by by uh, hospitalizations in France, you had 70,000 that were that were hospitalized because of the flu, because of respiratory illness. And, and you know, that's a that's a given fact right there. We know the records from uh, when the Americans go into the occupation period of Germany. Uh, this guy, Jay Grissinger, he had been the Surgeon General of the Rainbow and then becomes the Surgeon General of, of the of one of the, of the first corps of that third army. And they said between January and March of 1919, they had 16,000 more cases. They send all those back to France, so nobody in Germany is getting more infected there. But in that three-month period, they had uh, 525 die. So you can see that it's really on a decline in that 1919 right. period. They say that overall in France and Europe, about 20,000 Americans and uh, within the AEF completely, you know, back in the United States as well as in France, that like 60,000 will die uh, of the flu, respiratory illness. I think in America, it's it's almost a half a million you know, people die of, of this flu uh, and in the AEF itself, it's, it's you know, it's it's somewhere, you know, about about 60,000. Now, what about the central powers? Maybe let's focus on Germany. What sort of impact does the flu have on their troop strength right at the very end of the war? Well, you know, we found that intelligence report and uh, it was from right after that uh, last German offensive, Ludendorff's uh, Friedensturm, Friedensturm, the, the peace offensive of July 1918. Uh, this was the last big offensive of the Germans. And they captured all these prisoners. And in those interrogation reports that the Rainbow Division had, all these German soldiers said that the, the reason it didn't work was because everybody had the flu. They said that uh, the, the German um, units were down by 50 percent, you know, that because it was so racked with the flu at that time. And I think in, in later on in October of 1918, you've, you've got almost uh, 3,000 dead in, in Berlin. They're dying of like a rate of like 400 a day in Hamburg, um, you know, at, in about November of, of 1918. Eventually, 400,000 Germans total will die of the flu. And I've seen anywhere between like a, a 80,000 to 180,000 as far as how many German soldiers die. So it, 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 it affects, that's what I, we were saying about before, where they talk about the Americans bringing it over. But, you know, the, we know that it was already rampant in the German army, as least as, as, as early as July, you know, before it really starts uh, crippling the, the Americans, you know. So, I mean, it's, it's prevalent through, through everywhere. One thing that's always been pretty interesting to me is that, especially as Americans, we tend to think of the Spanish flu as kind of a very tragic coda to World War One, but really it's something that's happening during World War One. 
Why do you think we think of it that way? Isn't the, the really harsh time in the United States, like right after the war, isn't that when like most people are dying is like after the armistice? And so I, I think that's why it's seen as, you know, right, right around the period of the armistice and after. Yeah, is is maybe like the 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 hardest time of the post-war. So the, you know maybe they look at that. But as as we found out, you know, very few of those early historians really uh, counted that flu as a factor. You know, as as it coming um, into the war. You know, and maybe okay. being a decisive factor. But when we look at that uh, last offensive of the Germans, that one in July of 1918, where those prisoners all said that, you know, it was because of the flu, they immediately start the counterattack, you know, Foch does right after that. That's, you know, immediately as soon as that that uh, offensive ends on like the 16th of July, like the 18th of July, they're hitting Suissant. And then the Einmarn offensive starts, then the Hundred Days, and then the march in, you know, going into Germany. So, I mean, you can say that 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 has a very decisive effect, um, at least as far as as taking advantage of that failure of, you know, that last offensive to finally start that that counterattack. Now, Foch had finally been able to build up a reserve of troops. The British had given him some and he had all these Americans coming in. But, you know, if if the Germans hadn't been so whacked by, you know, the flu in that July time period, you know, who who knows? You know, so, I mean, it it does affect the war. Because there's two arguments. One is that the Spanish flu alters the way the war is fought and brings a quicker end to the conflict. And then there's the opposite argument that the Spanish flu actually hindered a quick, more decisive end to World War One. So you fall more on the side that it brought a quicker end to the war. Well, it, it was just part of everything that was happening. I mean, um, and okay. I guess, you know, that's that's Klaus, which is friction. You know, you you never know how things are going to go and it, it just goes the way it goes and and different elements play into it. And I think I think the flu, you know, just it it, it definitely played a part in it. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.